right. I am here with Alex Kantrowitz. Alex, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. So you are the author of the best-selling book, Always Day One, How the Tech Titans Plan to Stay on Top Forever. And it's really an incredible read for anyone that just wants to gain insight into how these world-changing companies operate and what their philosophy is. So I'd like to talk about what's common among the big four tech companies, Facebook, Apple, Amazon, and Google, and also what's unique about each of them. And I'd also like to get your thoughts on the congressional hearing that just took place and you know, the arguments for and against whether we should break up these big tech companies. But I would like to spend the majority of today's episode on the future. So where we think these companies are gonna go from here. So maybe a good place for us to start would just be to define the always day one mindset and how that differs from big companies in the past, which in your words, you know, would grow slow, decline and ossify. Right, so a big company in the past, like let's say you were starting last century, right? You would last about 70 years on the Fortune 500. So you could exist on one idea and basically ride that for a lifetime uh, and be in pretty good shape. Today, the average company on the Fortune 500 lasts for 15 years which means that you need to be continually coming up with new ideas. You can't just ride one. And that's sort of what this always day one mentality is. For the tech giants, unlike big companies in the past, they really do act as if it's their first day, meaning anything that came beforehand is not something that you're going to treasure. You're going to take your legacy, put it aside, and invent for the future. If you want to have any chance of staying successful in a world where you're likely going to be flushed out of the system faster than you can imagine. Right. And you talk about in the book how Facebook, Google, Microsoft even, um, and Amazon have this always day one mindset, but that Apple is a little bit different and it maybe has a bit of an identity crisis that you talk about in your one zero article. So maybe you could talk a little bit about how the mindset of Apple differs from the other big tech companies you describe in your book. Yeah, so I would say that um, Facebook, Google, Amazon and Microsoft are operating cultures of invention or reinvention. I think Apple is in, uh, operating a culture of refinement. So what the other four tech giants have done really well is they've seen that their flagship products aren't gonna take them into the future like we discussed. You just don't have the, um, the runway to be able to live off of those products for too long. Microsoft realized as they learned a hard lesson with Windows, they thought they would be able to be the desktop operating system forever. They wouldn't need to get into any other new businesses. And then we quickly moved to the age of mobile and they were left behind until they adapted. So Apple is right now in this stage where they're in this culture of refinement, where they're really counting on their flagship product to lead their business uh, into the future. And that's the iPhone. And I think that's a danger. And you can see that um, inside Apple's culture, they're not built for inventiveness. They're built for making the screen a little bit shinier and the battery last a little longer and the device a little bit thinner, um, which, are, which are all good and have made the uh, iPhone the most successful uh, you know, mobile device in history. But when it comes to shifting into the future, something that I think we'll discuss, it's really not going to benefit Apple very much at all. Yeah, definitely. And I've even noticed this myself, like I've upgraded to a new iPhone once a year, every year since I think like the iPhone 4, but I'm probably not going to upgrade, although I might just because of 5G. But it does seem like, okay, how many more iterations of the same basic device can we put out there and have people still be willing to buy it, especially with everything going on in the economy right now and with COVID? 
So what do you see as Apple's path towards the future if they do get things right? Like, will they move beyond an iPhone into wearables? You know, you talk about maybe having a, a smart car and, and some other possibilities. I'm curious where you see Apple going from here if they are able to change things up and be more innovative. Yeah, I think it starts and ends with the culture. Once you create a culture that's able to have, um, you know, that, that's, that's able to incentivize invention, then all of a sudden you'll be able to invent. Um, and I think that if Apple turns the culture around, then it will, you know, find its way into all manner of different worlds. So, for instance, it tried to build a voice assistant with Siri, gave Google like a five year head start. Uh, you know, when it came to building the Google Assistant, but Google's Assistant is still much better. Why? Mm. The answer underneath is culture. Apple didn't let the Siri team talk to anybody else within the company. And if you can't do that, you can't really effectively, um, you know, build a, a, a voice assistant because the voice assistant needs to plug into all the different aspects and apps on the phone. And the Siri team had to kind of sit inside. The same goes with the car, right? Apple's trying to build a car, um, but that car is really failing right now because again it's the same type of culture problem where they have iphone people and an iphone mentality uh you know underpinning the car's construction and that leads to problems i'll give you one example um you know with the iphone you obviously start with the design first and then you get the software mm. inside they want to do the same thing with the car the problem is that by doing that they've they've shied away from some of the ugly parts that we have in self-driving cars right now you know self-driving cars looks like look like rolling submarines right now <laughs> because they have these sonars and radars that are uh or, and lidars that are up on the top of their uh on the top and the sides and they're ugly but they're what makes the software work uh and apple's designers didn't like that so they you know according to the sources i spoke with for the book took the sensors and tried to hide them inside the car which then ended up giving their machine learning engineers far less data to work with uh, and that turned into a problem, you know, in terms of the project's success. So I think for Apple, start with the culture, you know, create an inventive culture, not just one of refinement. And then all of a sudden, the world will be open to you in terms of the next eras of computing. Voice computing might be one of them. The smart uh, car might be another. Um, but again, without the culture, you're in, you're in seriously bad shape. So that's where it has to start and end. Yeah, totally. And it seems like Apple used to sort of make the case of having just the best possible products pretty much on all dimensions. And now it seems like their real value prop is privacy. The fact that, you know, Tim Cook is not willing to let the FBI go in and, and you know, see a backdoor into your iPhone. And you can pretty much guarantee that you're not going to have any, you know, nefarious apps on your phone. And so I'm curious if Apple is threatened by another big tech company, where would that threat likely come from? Like, would it come from maybe Google has a phone that's all about privacy or maybe Microsoft, you know, they've kind of already with Microsoft Teams innovated and had a little bit more of a focus on privacy. Like if Apple doesn't do things right, who should they be worried about? Yeah, I'm glad you brought up competitors because this is what it's really about. The privacy marketing term is all about uh, fending off competitors and that would be Facebook and Google. Um, who have had their issues. And I, don't, mm -hmm. I wouldn't suggest that Apple isn't effective on the privacy, but it is a marketing uh, device. And the reason why they're rolling it out is because Facebook and Google are competing with them, you know, both with a, a competing operating system with Android and with messaging systems that Facebook has. And that's why Tim Cook has started attacking Facebook. It's not because he enjoys it, it's because he needs to. Hmm. You know, iMessage is such a lock-in for Apple devices. You know, people won't switch off of Apple devices because they don't want to show up 
as a green message right. if they're using another device. Uh, and so who can possibly take that advantage away? Well, Mark Zuckerberg can because he owns uh, Messenger and WhatsApp and Instagram, which people use for messaging. And if people move their messaging to those apps entirely, then you know that could be a big problem for Apple as it tries to own the lock-in for its devices. So that's why Tim Cook needs to um, emphasize that Apple is about privacy. Does he care about privacy? I'm sure, but what he really cares about more is maintaining his lead uh, in the mobile device sector. And, and to do that, he has to sell against Facebook, sell against Google, and that's what this privacy campaign is all about. Definitely. And one thing that struck me during the congressional hearing is that a lot of these Congress people really harped on Apple for their app store and the fact that they take a 30% cut of apps, but Google has the same exact policy. So it seems like it seemed weird to me that they would only harp on Apple for that reason, but not for Google. Is there any, you know, is this Apple doing anything worse than Google as far as anti-competitive behavior? Now you're gonna have to fact check me on this one, but I believe you can still install software on Google devices without that app store. So. The Apple, but oh, I, I mean, you have a, these are problems with both with both companies, right? They they are giving their products away. You know, in Apple's case, the App Store. In Google's case, you know, all, all the Google services, right? And th this is a problem because uh, uh, they then create these massive marketplaces that aggregate, you know, all the supply. You know, Facebook and Google have all the content. Amazon has all the products. Apple has all the apps. And when you are the marketplace of record, you can then, you know, use that power to squish suppliers. Uh, right. So, you know, is Apple any worse than Google on this front? I wouldn't say so because you have, you know, Google has its app store, but it also has, uh, you know, an ad exchange. And the ad exchange does a similar thing as the iOS app store. So it's all about marketplace power and how it manifests itself in the way that these tech giants run their operations. Um, you know, Apple might do it one way, Google might do it another way, but this is all, it ultimately ends up being the same problem, just manifested in different ways. Totally. Yeah. And it also seems like, you know, we've talked a little bit about how having your own operating system is a big advantage and that's something that Facebook doesn't enjoy. So maybe now we talk a little bit about Facebook and its strategy and, mm. you know, Facebook has, I think when a lot of people hear about Facebook, they're like, oh, I never use Facebook anymore. Like it's over, like that company's kind of had its heyday, but they don't take into account that Facebook is not just Facebook. It's Facebook, Instagram, WhatsApp, it's Oculus. And maybe with Oculus, they will be able to build their own operating system. So I'm curious your thoughts on how Facebook can stay competitive and whether it really will need to eventually have its own operating system to compete with the likes of Apple, Google, and Amazon. Yeah, the way that Facebook stays competitive is it invents and reinvents fast. You know, Facebook's gone through so many different uh, eras in its very short lifespan. It started out as an online directory, then it moved to this broadcast network where you could broadcast your thoughts to anyone. Uh, and basically everyone that you've ever met. And then it realized that people wanted less of a broadcast platform and we're moving more towards messaging. And so now it's reinventing itself again uh, and doing it by emphasizing intimate sharing with groups mm -hmm. and messaging. So this is now the core of Facebook strategy. It's not broadcasting to everyone through the newsfeed. It's finding spaces for you and your loved ones or your close friends to be able to communicate through Facebook's products. And the way Facebook does this is it's built a feedback culture inside its company, which I go into depth about. Uh, 
uh, in Always Day One, the book. Um, it, uh, it, it makes sure that people can bring ideas to folks no matter what level they're at. Uh, it makes sure that like, even if you're at the bottom of the company, you have an opportunity to go up to Mark Zuckerberg and tell him what you think. And actually, you know, by appreciating other people's ideas and not being a visionary, like we tend to think of tech leaders, you know, Zuckerberg's been able to pivot the company through these multiple shifts. So that's how Facebook's been able to survive, uh, you know, despite the fact that it's living in the most fickle of all industries, which is social media. You know, you use a social media product. One day you think it's the be all end all and that it will be the product uh, that comes the last, you know, in the world of social media. You think about HQ, HQ trivia, you know, people, you know, made that a part of their daily habit for months. And it was really considered the next big thing, and now it doesn't exist anymore. Right. That's how fickle social media users are. And by appreciating feedback and by reinventing, Facebook's been able to fight that off. Yeah, it is amazing the cadence with which Facebook delivers new products. And you talk about in the book how even though they are, in some sense, the most Chinese of all the big tech companies, because they're willing to copy awesome features and products that they see in the ecosystem, they also improve upon them. So they didn't just take Snapchat and then end, you know, end with Instagram stories in exactly the same version as Snapchat. They actually continued to make it better and better. And now a lot of people would say it's actually a lot better than Snapchat stories. But there also is a dark side to this, you know, moving fast and break things, which people talk about all the time, which is election interference, misinformation. And as Facebook kind of moves from this more like public broadcasting system, as you say, into more of private messages with Messenger and private posting in groups, it does seem like that can lend itself more to people spreading disinformation and maybe a lack of, of fact checking. But on the other hand, like, you know, I run an ad agency and there are tons of moderators that are constantly reviewing content. And so I wonder if you see it more as Facebook has just kind of naturally become maybe more of like a right wing place for people to congregate and share ideas, you know, rather than Facebook actually like planning that to happen. Like how much blame should we put on Facebook and what can they do to be better in that regard? Yeah, I would say that Facebook is a shit show right now, and it is their own fault. Um, and I don't think it's that they have it out to get any certain political party, but I do think that um, there's a structural problem inside the Facebook platform that if they start to deal with, we could end up in a much better situation. And that is the share button. You know, and I've written about mm. this a bunch, but share buttons and retweet buttons allow for very quick, unthinking dissemination and propagation of information by people who share it without having a second thought, right? So if you think about the way that this stuff worked before the share button came out, uh, right? So let's say you had an article, you saw something that you liked, you would read it, you would copy the link, you would paste it, and that would you know, give you the amount of time that you needed to think about it. And you, you know, all along you're saying to yourself, hey, do I really wanna share this? Right, so, okay, it could be one thing if you share like an informative article that people will get something out of. Um, you know, that's sort of, the, there aren't many speed bumps you need. That's something that you probably want to do, right? But most people more likely than not would not take an article that says Hillary Clinton is a space alien, you know, copy it and paste it into their, you know, compose button in the newsfeed and say, yes, this is something I want to attach my name to and I want to share it with my friends because I believe that's true. But the whole system gets turned on its head when you have a button that allows for this sharing to happen without any second thought because that process of copying and pasting the link is stripped out. You do it, you know, you hit that share button on instinct, not without, um, not without 
not with any thoughtfulness at all. Um, and it sort of plays to your identity and to outrage and right. to confirmation bias in a way that this other system wouldn't. And to me, it's no surprise that, you know, since Facebook's added that share button in 2012, it's become, you know, a fairly decrepit place for, uh, you know, when you consider the information health on the platform. So for me personally, this is a solvable problem. Everyone talks about content moderation. But to me, at the end of the day, what this is really about is fixing the system itself. I kind of look at this as you look at the outputs, you can try to fix those, or you look at the machine, you try mm. to fix that. And I think that by trying to fix the outputs, you're going to be playing this game where you're on a treadmill forever, and you won't really make any progress. You try to fix the machine, then all of a sudden you're talking about something concrete that might actually work. Right. And I read that WhatsApp actually made a change recently where they limited the number of people you could share an article with which seemed like a, a good move in at least slowing the spread of disinformation without limiting anyone's freedom. Do you see something similar to that being a good change for Facebook? Or what change would you make to the share button? Yeah, I think that's a great, that's a great move that WhatsApp made. And I think, you know, I don't have all the answers, but I think we can at least do some testing, mm -hmm. right? So one thing I'd love for these companies to test, limit the amount of retweets and shares. You know, how would that change? the thing just test it let's see what happens but it doesn't hurt to test right so i'd say yeah. test that first what if we had people hover their their finger or their mouse over these buttons before they could use them what if you needed to count to 10 you know how, how would that change your behavior i think pretty significantly it's amazing how 10 seconds can have that big of an outcome in terms of the way that these these companies run what if you made people you know wait to click a link before they could share twitter's running a test on this right now, having asking people, hey, do you want to share that you haven't clicked the link? Um, between that test and mm. Facebook's test with WhatsApp, I think you're seeing these platforms clearly admit that there's something wrong with this quick resharing and retweeting. Right. Um, if you so haven't, they, they admit it. We don't talk about it. They admit <laughs> that it's a problem through these tests, and they're trying to find ways to solve it. And I think we need to get there. Because the longer we live in this information system where there's no no friction at all, we're going to continue to have this bullshit starting, you know, fill fill our brains and you know start just just you know create tension and animosity among people that doesn't need to be there. Uh, and so I'm hopeful that you know over time the companies will see the problem here and start to work on fixes. And I certainly am not going to stop talking about it because it's something I get pretty heated up about. Yeah, no, that's great. I mean, if you're if you're sharing something and you haven't even clicked the link and read the article, then I think that's definitely a time to take a pause. Let's talk about Amazon now. I really liked your part about Amazon's hand off the wheel, which was originally Project Yoda. And also you talk about these systems like UiPath that Amazon uses to actually sort of uh, measure what people are doing, their keystrokes, and then basically automating their jobs so that they can take on new, more innovative jobs. And this seems like such a good model for how we should be doing things. And when I just see that contrasted with the way that government works and how they oftentimes inject like some bureaucratic middlemen, rather, which is like the opposite approach to Amazon, uh, it was just really striking to me. So I'm, I'm curious if maybe you could say a little bit about Amazon's, you know, modus operandi with, with hands off the wheel and maybe what other traditional companies or the government could learn from that. Yeah, and this is sort of that gets at the core of why I wrote the book. I wrote the book because I think that the way that we work is changing and the way that we lead companies are changing. The tech giants have a head start 
And that's why they're dominating the economy. But we can co-opt their systems and start to catch up. But we need the information first. And so I thought it was important to get out the information. Yeah. So what is Hands Off the Wheel? Hands Off the Wheel is an automation program inside Amazon where they use machine learning to automate you know, many of the tasks of people inside the company. Um, you know, Amazon used to rely on vendor managers to figure out how many items to place in what uh, fulfillment center at what time and what zip code. So if you're a zip code that likes to go skiing, for instance, Amazon probably knows that because they put a bunch of North Face jackets in your uh, in your nearby fulfillment center. So when you hit the buy button, it can get to you in a day. So Amazon's so good at predicting your demand that they already know what you're going to buy before you buy it, which is kind of interesting, at least in aggregate. Um, and so they've put these systems in place to, so they don't have a person on the phone saying, I, or a person at a desk saying, I guess somebody's going to um, buy this many jackets and this. They know they can use the technology to, to not guess, but to be precise. And so this sort of gets at, so, okay, so that makes them more effective on that, on that front. But I think it gets at a deeper thing which is the way that that work is structured inside Amazon and as well as the rest of the tech giants. So I think we have to look at work in two different buckets. There is idea work, which is anything involved with creating something new and execution work, uh, which is anything involved in supporting something that exists already. What the tech giants are so adept at is using technology to minimize execution work. So to take all that support work that exists to keep their current products running to, to use technology to minimize that in order to make room for idea work so they can invent, invent again. So, so let's go back to this, to this um, Amazon retail example where this is happening. So they're using the machine learning to minimize the execution work of buying and, for, and, and doing inventory management, things of that nature, and then um, you know working to create more room for idea work. What is that getting them? So it's not that Amazon is firing these retail employees but it's making them product program managers and product managers across the rest of the company, people that are essentially professional inventors. Mm -hmm. And by doing that, they've, they've freed up their people's time in order to be able to create new things, to bring it back as to, to the core message, to make it always day one, right? They're reinventing as opposed to protecting, and they're doing that by you know with the time they have. And I'll just close this out by telling one of my favorite stories from the book which is that there was a guy in the Amazon's retail organization named Dilip Kumar who ran pricing and promotions. He spent a year and a half or so underneath Jeff Bezos as his technical advisor where he would take every meeting that Bezos took and just learn how the man works. And typically people who do this end up going to do something big inside Amazon afterwards. By the time he finished being a technical advisor underneath Bezos, pricing and promotions was all but automated by Project Yoda, which you know turned into hands off the wheel. Um, and so he basically had to start from scratch. And what he did was he said, he took a team of people from the retail organization and said, let's find the let's fix the most annoying part of shopping uh, in real life, not just digital, which we already do with the website. And so they came up with this idea for a, a basically an enormous uh, vending machine, which fixed the most annoying part of of checkout, which was uh, of retail, which was checkout in person retail. People like to shop; they don't like to wait on lines uh, and take a long time to check out. They just want to get their stuff and go. Uh, and a big vending machine, they thought, could potentially solve some of that, some of that problem. Okay, it turned out it wasn't exactly the right way to do it. Um, it still sort of kicked the can down the curb. So what they ended up doing was creating the Amazon Go Store, where you literally scan in, and there are sensors and and cameras that are watching your movements as you go. 
So you don't need to do any scanning outside of that initial QR code that gets you in the store. You pick whatever you want off the shelves and then you just walk out and it feels like shoplifting, but then Amazon will push a receipt to your phone, basically, you know, telling you exactly, you know, exactly what, what you, um, what you took and, and, you know, charges your card for it. And, you know, it's, uh, it's fairly wild. It feels, it feels yeah. like magic, but I really think it's going to be the future of retail. And it all happened because of culture, because of the way that Amazon used this machine learning technology to minimize the execution work, make room for idea work, put Dilip Kumar on a more inventive task and ended up creating something, you know, that's uniquely Amazon and is going to propel the company's, you know, in-person retail efforts for years. And this is just sort of how it works inside the tech, tech giants. Use technology, invent, support, and invent again. Yeah, I love that. And, and I love how that story illustrates not only what the big tech companies can do, but maybe how workers can even reinvent themselves, you know, after coronavirus, after this economic upheaval. So I want to talk a little bit about jobs, income, potential joblessness, and how we can get over that transition. Because it does seem to me like a lot of, you know, a lot of people, I don't know how many, will be able to reinvent themselves just in the example you said, where rather than focusing on execution work, they focus on idea work and they leverage technology to help them do the execution work for them. But it also seems like not everyone will be able to make that transition. And, you know, many people like Andrew Yang have made the argument that this time is different. You know, it's not the same as it was in the agricultural revolution or industrial revolution. It's going to be a lot harder for people to reinvent themselves. So I'm curious just where you are as far as how optimistic you are about people being able to adapt and overcome versus how much you agree with people like Andrew Yang who say this time is different and we maybe need to give people more support uh, given that. Yeah, I, I like what Andrew Yang has to say, but I disagree with him on this point. I do think people will be able to adapt. I don't think that it's beyond people's means to be able to do it. Uh, if you look at, you know, the factory era, I'm sure there was a lot of people saying that folks who were, you know, on the on the assembly line weren't going to be able to adapt to the knowledge economy. We certainly have problems in our economy today, but it's not because people can't do knowledge work, right? So I think what this means is we we can get into this new world. We just need to change a few of the ways that we do things because ultimately it does require a new system of thinking. And the way to get good at this is through education that teaches not to memorize and spit back as we have in most of our institutions. And in fact, towards the end of the book, you know, I went back to Cornell School of Industrial and Labor Relations where I studied as an undergrad and I had professors basically, you know, <laughs> shaking me and being like, the problem is not automation. The problem is that our students are only interested in memorizing and spit back, spitting back, learning the system, getting A's, and they don't have the ability to think abstractly Right. Or, or work in a world without, with you know, where they can live uh, without the pressure of of success, where they can be. And I know it's cliche, but be, you know, uh, uh, willing to fail. And yeah. without that, our education system is going to put us in a bad position. So I don't take the yank position that it's hopeless and we need to give people money. I think there is hope. We got to believe in people's ability to do this stuff. It's not. It's hard, but it's not out of our intellectual you know, capabilities. We can do it. We just need to be able to educate the, the way to think that's going to get us there as opposed to, you know, sort of relying on our current system today, which is not going to get us very, very far. Yeah. 
Yeah, it almost feels like humans are becoming kind of like the sensory nodes that kind of feel out what people want, where there's opportunities and coming up with ideas. And then eventually a lot of the execution work can just be done, whether it's, you know, through being a third party seller on Amazon or having a store that you sell through Instagram or any of these big tech companies. Like you can see them as a threat, but you can also see them as handling a lot of the work for you so you can focus on coming up with new ideas. So maybe, yeah. I don't know if you want to respond to that, but I do. Yeah. yeah. I mean, just think about how much time we spend on stuff we don't need to be working on, filling yeah. out expenses, writing forms, you know, um, moving data from one place to another. We have so much time on execution work and so little time on creativity. So people are scared of this new, this new world that, you know, we're heading towards because of the way the technology uh, is going to be involved in the way we work. But I think it's pretty, pretty great. And I think, yeah. um, you know, there's a, so much potential there, so much to be excited about. We just need to be able to manage our way into it in a way that's safe and sustainable for everyone. Right. And and I guess that's what was kind of so striking about the congressional hearings is that it just seemed like there were these two different philosophies about how America should operate. And I'm not saying there aren't some ways that we could improve how these big four tech companies operate, but it does seem like they're innovating at such a pace that they really are improving the world for consumers, I would say more than, than anyone else. They're like, you know, super focused on how they can create a better world for consumers. And also, they might not be as monopolistic as they're portrayed by Congress because they're all competing against each other. And a lot of these spaces seem to overlap. So maybe rather than being afraid of the way that these companies operate, Maybe we should emulate them more, whether you're a startup, an entrepreneur, whether you're a government official. Um, so I'd just like to get maybe your broad take on the congressional hearings and and, you know, sort of what the arguments are for and against regulating or breaking up big tech. Yeah, no, I, I think it begins with us. Right. Like, let's start with with our, ourselves and then then work on the government. So. Companies can't just throw up their hands and say, we're going to lose to the tech giants, so why even try? It's a terrible strategy. Mm -hmm. uh, the better strategy is, let's learn how the, what's made these companies so successful, co-op their systems and use them on our own, and that's sort of the idea of always they want. Um, that said, the government does have a role to play. When companies get this big and powerful, there needs to be a check on their power. Because then ultimately, if there isn't, they're like any company, they're going to start using it for evil. Uh, and I think like one of the most telling moments of the hearing yesterday was when Jeff Bezos was trying to walk his way out of the fact that Amazon has used third party seller data to help build its own products. Now, he said we have mm -hmm. a policy against it. We enforce it. It's voluntary. But I can't tell you that no one's used it. I mean, come on. Like right, everybody right. knows what's up. <laughs> your job is to enforce your policies if you're the CEO. I mean, like, yeah, OK, you, you need to have vision, you need to run the company. But ultimately... You can't uh, you can't take suppliers livelihoods and start demolishing it because you know everything about them because you own the, the marketplace. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and that's what Amazon's been doing. And Bezos all but admitted it. he didn't deny it yesterday. He said, you know, we're investigating. It takes a long time. I mean, give me a break. How long is it actually <laughs> take? Right. You know, you know, very well, like the Wall Street Journal was able to find this out before Amazon. Something about that right. seems kind of often. Right. So. You know, long story short, I think that um, Congress has a role to play. They need to investigate the, the power of these marketplaces. Right now, they're so dysfunctional. I don't really see it happening in any true meaningful way. And I've written about that in my newsletter, Big Technology, a bunch. Uh, but 
you know, ultimately, I think um, I, I, I think that it's a it's a push and pull. Tech giants push. Government needs to be able to pull, you know, make mm-hmm. sure that um, they're restrained and, and, you know, these power abuses. Uh, and, and then ultimately we, we're going to get to a better place because of it. Um, yeah. So that's my take. You know, that are they good for the economy? Yes. But, you know, I think uh, Scott Galloway said that they're net positive. But the key word is net. And we need to, you know, look at the negatives and make sure that we can minimize them to create a healthy economy for everyone, not just for these companies. Mm-hmm. But again, let's let's, you know, for us, you know, working in the business world, what we could do first is get our own house in order, make sure our culture and our processes are as good as the tech giants and then worry about having the government coming in and trying to, you know, effectively restrain them to give us room to compete. Yeah, definitely. And what would, I'm curious, what would a good solution be to Amazon's third-party seller issue? Like, is it not looking at other third-party data in order to gain insight or maybe making that data available to individual sellers or maybe some other solution? Like, Because I definitely recognize the issue of if you're some small shop, you could essentially have predatory pricing by Amazon where, you know, in the diapers.com example, they're losing millions of dollars a year just to push diapers.com out of the market. And then once they're out of the market, they raise prices. Um, like what would I, I recognize that problem, but what could a good solution be? Yeah, so I think it's an issue. So so Amazon can, of course, take matters into its own hands and build a firewall that makes sure that its employees don't look at this data. Don't give them access to it. Right. It's as simple as that. Um, but look, there's there's a fundamental issue that um, starts with the fact that, you know, Amazon is a first party seller. It's also a marketplace for third party sellers. It collects all of their data and it builds its own private label brands hmm. uh, that compete with these sellers. So having a system that has all of these needs to be managed responsibly. Amazon hasn't shown an ability to do that. So I would say either you give them an opportunity to manage it responsibly or the government steps in and starts to separate those parts of the business. Right. Okay, cool. Well, let's move on to Google. I want to talk about them because to me, you know, I've had, you know, lots of different smart assistants like Alexa and Siri and Cortana. And it does seem like Google is the most advanced smart assistant. And Mm -hmm. one thing that I'm curious about is if, dominance in artificial general intelligence will be sort of an X factor that could lead to one of these companies sort of just running away with a lot of market share. And it seems like to me, Google is in the lead there. So I'm curious how important you think it is to have the most superior artificial intelligence system and what that could mean for the future. Yeah, I've spoken a lot with the people who work on artificial intelligence at these companies. I, you know, there are predictions we'll see artificial general intelligence, which the definition is that it mirrors human intelligence. I don't, there are predictions that we'll see that in our lifetime. Um, of course, once you get artificial general intelligence, it becomes super intelligent right. because it can stay up all the time. It can have access to the world's, you know, collection of facts um, and doesn't need to spend time learning. So I think we go quickly from, you know, narrow intelligence to super intelligence and general intelligence isn't really a thing. So, um, you know, I don't see in our lifetime us getting to super intelligence. It seems really difficult. Uh, We're just getting to the point where we're letting computers determine like what images are uh, um, they're they're looking at. 
you know, before computers were blind, now with computer visions, they can see. Same thing with interpreting language. But to be able to have common sense and make predictions and act on those predictions is just an order of magnitude further than what we have today. I mean, here's what the technology, it's actually kind of interesting. The technology today, so machine learning technology today is um, being fed videos, lots of videos. And then it's being, and because it can see, now it's starting to um, figure out what's going on in those videos and being asked to make predictions, right? So imagine you, you, you showed, uh, and I'm just kind of talking abstractly here, but imagine you showed an artificial intelligence you know, platform, you know, all the videos on YouTube. And then you took a bottle and you poured it over, you started to pour it over someone's head to the point where the water almost came out. Now, what researchers are trying to get machine learning intelligence to be able to do is to say, if you turn that bottle a little more, that person is going to get wet, hmm. right? And it sounds basic, but the idea is that's the way you understand this world is we, we live our, our world second by second. And we're basically trying to operate in it by making predictions and decisions based off of what we predict is going to happen. Right. And so that's so that's where we are today. We're still in the very early stages of getting this very basic prediction functionality, you know, to the point where it's not a joke. So, um, you know, I think that even, even narrow intelligence, like the smaller things like computer vision and natural language processing are going to be big for the tech companies, but I don't think we're going to see them getting into super intelligence uh, anytime soon. Okay, good to know. And I'm just curious, have you looked into it all OpenAI's GPT-3 that just came out like a couple weeks ago? Because that to me seems like a pretty big uh, milestone, uh, at least like, you know, the fact that maybe it can't predict that someone's about to pour water on their head and get wet, but it can predict what the next, you know, sentence is going to be or should be based on mm -hmm. a minimum amount of input. Um, were you impressed yeah. by that or, or, do you, or do you think it's, you know, we're still pretty far away? I, I still think we're pretty far away. I mean, you can get AI to do amazing things. I mean, think about um, how Google's uh, uh, machine learning beat Go. Yeah, um, yeah. So, but we it's can pretty narrow. You got to work with a human. But yeah, yeah. To, to take it to go from there to a thinking brain type of computing is a massive, massive leap. Um, yeah, and, totally. and definitely at least decades away. Awesome. Okay, so I just have one other question about Google, and then maybe we can get into some rapid fire questions and then the future. Great. So yeah. for Google, you know, one thing that Congress really talked about was their walled garden approach, where how a lot of screen space, if you go to Google or any Google product is dedicated to Google's own products. So if you search for a flight, you're going to get Google flights automatically. You know, you can search for trends on Google. You'll so they definitely do a lot of work to keep you in their ecosystem. And Congress has had concerns that that's anti-competitive behavior. But I could also see from the consumer's perspective how it's really convenient to be able to just use like free mail and free flight checker and all of these free tools. Um, so I'm just curious how what your thoughts are on sort of weighing what's convenient for consumers and what might be anti-competitive for other uh, competitors? Yeah, I, I don't, um, I, I think the Congress should really look at the, the Google ad marketplace. Um, this idea of 
you know, the Google search results. I know a lot of people like to point to them, point to them as an issue, but I don't know. I'm just thinking about from my standpoint as a consumer, I love that stuff. Yeah. I type in time. I don't need to go to a website. Google will tell me the time in whatever city I want. You yeah. know, I search for a flight number. Google will tell me if it's on time. I don't need to go into my email or to some other website. You know, I search about, uh, I search for a definition. I'll get that right in Google. I search for, you know, information about a historical figure. I'll get it there. Ultimately, what Google is, and this is sort of what they're moving to with the assistant, is a conversation between Google and the user. Mm. We it's don't, like an oracle. We don't type keywords. Exactly. We don't type keywords. We ask questions mm -hmm. to this thing. And therefore, it, you know, if you're thinking about what the best experience is going to be for a consumer, the thing should give us answers. And the fact that Google is trying to provide those answers to me is not a big deal. Yeah, I agree. And I think it's, it's a necessary step along where you can ask Google verbally and get a quick answer. You know, that it's not like they could read every single like competitor option and then have you totally. choose. I mean, yeah. Like who are these Luddites who are, who are saying we must be able to click into the links, you know, <laughs> make our lives worse. I don't know. I mean, I understand the open web is important. I'm a supporter of the open web. But ultimately, if the argument is to make a product worse, I don't get it. Like, yeah. if we have to make progress here. They're going to really hate what the next evolution of the web is going to look like if they don't like this one. Right. Plus, like, I mean, they, they had some stats, which actually shows that on a global scale, a lot of these companies aren't as big as you would think. Like Amazon referenced that they only account for 4% of U.S. retail and 1% of global retail. And when you consider that they're not only competing with other American companies, but also with Chinese companies, which are oftentimes uh, subsidized by the state, it does seem like we shouldn't we shouldn't uh, kneecap them and their ability to compete in the global market. So I don't know if you have thoughts on, um, you know, how we should think about these companies in regards to competition from China and other states. Uh, but yeah, I mean, they, they're. They're definitely not without competitors. There's no question about that. They have tons of competitors, but like they're definitely not as small as they wanted us to believe, you know, mm -hmm. this week. I mean, you add Facebook, and I just wrote about this in Big Technology this week. Um, and you can get the newsletter just by typing bigtechnology.substack.com if you're interested. Uh, but I did this analysis looking at the fact that these companies, Facebook, Google, Amazon, Apple, Microsoft, make up 22% of the entire. S&P 500. The idea of the S&P 500 is that it's a diversified group of 500 companies that can sort of be an index for the economy. But when 22% of the entire thing is made up by five companies, that's a bit of an issue. And also sort of makes you wonder, well, how can the government rein in these companies if the health of the economy is tied so deeply to their success? You know, if these companies didn't exist in the S&P 500, the S&P 500 would be down on the year to Yeah. You know, not doing okay. So um, there, there's no question these companies are way too dominant, way too big, um, and you know they've sort of uh, they've they we're 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 now along for the ride with them because of it. Yeah, there's, there's no question about that. Well, um, but they do have comp competition, and you you asked about China, and I think like this is important. Like if if we want to have uh, a future controlled by American companies or Chinese companies, like I would definitely go with the American companies. They, you look at Chinese tech, uh, it's heavily censored. We don't know whether there's, you know, Chinese Communist Party, uh, you know, operatives that are trying to influence the algorithm on, um, on TikTok or other Chinese, Chinese uh, platforms. Um, 
I mean, you, I guess you can be reasonably assured that doesn't exist with the American companies, although who, <laughs> who knows these days? But yeah. I think the American companies definitely operate in a much freer world than the Chinese companies do. Uh, and so that is something that I think that as we think about uh, uh, ways to regulate these companies, um, we need to be concerned about because obviously, like, we don't want to destroy them and then give this future to China and let them do what they want with it. Yeah. Yeah. Kara Swisher calls that the she or me argument, which yeah. I think is fairly yeah. convincing. The, the other thing I was yeah. wondering is it does seem like a natural progression might be sort of consolidation. Like, for instance, you know, I run an ad agency. It's so much easier for me to just go to a few marketplaces where I can buy ads rather than the way it used to be, like buying it with all individual newspapers and that sort of thing. Or even from a user perspective, like, you know, rather than posting to a million different social media networks to kind of just have like one or two or three big networks that you and all your friends are on. It does seem like as far as what's most convenient for consumers, maybe some consolidation is is the natural progression of things. But I'm so I'm just curious if you think that is broadly true or if you think that it's still really important for innovation and competitiveness to make sure that we don't consolidate too much. Yeah, I think it's it's definitely an issue to be concerned about. We know that the um, federal government is not going to let these let these companies acquire the way that they used to up until now. Like that's yeah. going to be reined in a little bit. So I can see how consolidation might be feel more convenient. There's definitely things that are good about it from a user experience point of view. But ultimately, there are always costs to it. Right. Mm -hmm. Like you end up. So think about Netflix. Right. Netflix is a great service. But because it became so dominant, all of a sudden it becomes, you know, it sort of has this. Let me see if I'm getting my economics terms right. Basically, inelastic demand you know, to mm. the point where people will will are so addicted to Netflix, they'll go along and end up, you know, paying whatever price they charge, enabling them to rise fees. And though, even though they give, uh, you know, better service to consumers on the front end, we end up paying for it on the back end. Right. right? And so to me, I think that's the thing to be worried about for consolidation. And, you know, at least like our competition, the people that regulate competition in Washington seem ready to say, hey, we're not going to um, allow the type of acquisitions like the WhatsApps and the Instagrams that Facebook did in the past. Yeah, um, I think so that's, that's good. That's it's good to have a Snapchat here and some other competitors there. So I, I definitely feel you on that. OK, let's let's do a couple of rapid fire questions. So one is something we touched on earlier. What year, by what year do you predict we will achieve artificial general intelligence? So you said not in our lifetime. Do you think it'll happen by 2100? Like if you had to give a guess for a year, what would you say? I'll go with 2120, 100 years from now. Seems feasible. Okay, nice. Will consciousness arise within AI systems once they reach a sufficient level of intelligence? That's a good question. I know it's rapid fire, but like you start to get into the definition of consciousness and is consciousness tied to life. And if they do have consciousness, then are they living? These are good questions. Um, I would say that, yeah, if you get look, if you get if you end up getting to um, the, the artificial intelligence, uh, artificial general intelligence, you will definitely see some form of consciousness inside these programs, which is crazy to talk yeah. about. But that it comes along with the deal. So yeah, yeah, I agree with you. Okay, what do you perceive as being the single greatest threat to humanity or human civilization right now? I mean, ourselves, 
you know, we're always our own worst enemy. Um, and we just can't, I mean, you're kind of seeing in this coronavirus era that we just can't help ourselves, right? Like, people know what to do, and they can't do it. Same mm -hmm. thing with climate change. We know what to do, we can't do it. And so we're seeing this in, in micro, right? The, the problem that exists in macro. And I think that's an issue, a big issue for the way that our society is running. Because, you know, it's like, if, if we can't help ourselves, then what chance do we stand at solving our biggest problems? And right now I'm starting to, I'm starting to wonder if we actually can. Yeah. Yeah, likewise. Well, on the bright side, so what development or new, you know, new technological advancement are you most excited about us potentially achieving in the future? So uh, long, longer lasting battery uh, on, on the phone. I think. That's... Oh, <laughs> yeah. No, <laughs> so that's... I know that was a cop out answer, but I am excited for a phone that you can basically use for a couple of days and only have to charge once. Um, yeah. Other than that, I don't it's hard for me to tell. I mean, I do like these these technologies that keep us uh, in better touch with the people that, that we love, especially now that everybody has to be social distance. So maybe there's a chance that VR actually becomes interesting sometime uh, in the future. Um, you know, it's, it's tough to tell. Definitely. Okay, last rapid fire question. Should the US ban TikTok? Whew, that's a tough one. Uh, I, I don't, or I, if you know, we I, if like, yeah. should there be some sort of process to determine it maybe? Yeah, I think that they should, um, they should, they should investigate the company. And if they find out that the Chinese Communist Party is manipulating the algorithm, uh, then, then yeah, ban it. Uh, but but I would say that um, we don't know that that's happening yet. I mean, it's, it's it could be a scare tactic that we're seeing from some companies who would like to see TikTok go down, uh, end up getting placed under scrutiny. Uh, but let's like with all things like I, I'm always into the idea of uh, being measured and being thoughtful about the way that we approach them. And mm -hmm. I'm hoping that's going to be the case with TikTok. But, you know, I think we know already that we can't trust tech companies to do the right thing because they never actually do. So, right. Yeah, that's a tricky one. Awesome. Well, let's take a quick break now and then let's get into the future scenarios. All right, let's talk about the worst case scenario. Worst case scenario. So Alex, you outlined some pretty compelling black mirror scenarios in your book. So I'm really curious, you know, taking everything into account, what is your worst case scenario for the future of big tech? Well, um, I mean, I think that we can see that there, <laughs> the worst case scenario is, is again, one that I outlined in big technology this week, but um, just that they become too big to fail and mm. that the future of our economy is actually riding on these tech companies. I mean, if you think about, there are, if you think about the government, right, the government's supposed to be a check on these companies. But if you start looking into the retirement funds of government employees, they're super leveraged into the tech giants. Uh, I think Florida has hundreds of millions of, of dollars in, in one, in Facebook. Uh, uh, New York's re public employee retirement fund owns probably a billion dollars in Apple. Um, and as they make up, they've gone from 17% of the, uh, the S&P to 22% of the S&P, you know, only in a few months. Um, and, and therefore, you know, the companies the country's economic future is really riding on their success. Hmm. And it's, we're not there yet, 
you know, we can, the government's still more powerful than these companies. But at a certain point, the companies might just end up, you know, being in a position where if the U.S. is going to succeed, they have to succeed. And that becomes a really scary place, I would say, for anyone competing with them because they are able, essentially able to operate in a world without checks. And I worry about that. Yeah. And what would that world look like for just someone who's a citizen who's living, you know, day to day? Um, would it be, you know, basically a much more drastic income inequality than we have right now? Or what would it look like on the ground? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's hard to tell. Yeah. Um, but like we talk a little bit about the downstream effects, like we talked about the Netflix, Netflix ability to raise mm -hmm. prices, but you could end up seeing so you, yeah, you could end up seeing a lot more of your income going to these companies uh, and then, uh, you know, making it really difficult for for small businesses uh, to survive, uh, you know, without giving them giving these tech companies a huge a huge chunk of their revenue. And I've always thought that without a strong middle of the middle of the economy. You know, whether it's coming from uh, whether that whether that middle is is, um, you know, small and medium sized businesses or whether it's middle class people without a strong middle of, e of the economy, we're doomed. And I actually did you talk about the Black Marriage chapter. I actually did speak with a, a history professor who concentrates on labor studies. And basically he and I said, what if a lot of us go out of work? Right. And he's like, we could have, you know unrest in the streets and we were already seeing that yeah um and and yeah i i really do think that if we um if we put all of the wealth in the hands of the tech giants and cut out the middle of the economy we're going to be in, in some serious bad shape uh and and not live we already don't live in a healthy society our society is unstable and needs fixing uh, but it will exacerbate the the issue and uh and it, it, it could be ugly to be ugly. Yeah, we need strong middle. That's that's what it comes down to at the end of the day. Totally. Let's talk about the best case scenario. So in your book, you outline this Disneyland scenario, which I thought was a really smart metaphor because it shows that the role of kids in Disneyland is to have fun. Like that's their only yeah. job. And yet mm -hmm. without the kids, Disneyland would be totally meaningless. So you could imagine a sort of economy where all of the execution work is done for you and our job is just to flourish as human beings. So I'd, I'd love to hear you describe what your best case scenario is for the future of big tech and society at large. Best case scenario. Oh yeah, that's right. Um, so I, for that, so I, I wrote the Black Mirror chapter to illustrate that we need more dark thinking in the tech world because, you know, we, we don't, often anticipate the um we don't often anticipate the negative uses of products uh or the tech world doesn't you know as an outside observer sometimes anyway we give ourselves too much credit for knowing what's going to happen but the tech world certainly doesn't because there's so much optimistic thinking within its halls and so you know for, for that's what i wrote the chapters to say hey here's we can be actually be prepared for some you know dark scenarios if we end up uh uh, you know, actually starting to try to think about them. So I called a person I thought would be the biggest dark thinker, I, you know, I've ever met, which is a guy named Nick, Nick Bostrom. Bostrom. Yeah, yes, exactly. <laughs> Who's, um, you know, been called the doomsday philosopher and is warned about the uh, destruction that could come about if super intelligence, uh, you know, comes into existence and starts to say, you know, 
it starts to take charge and, and turn it. Uh, humanity into paper clips or right. anyway, whatever runaway AI scenario that he exists he, he imagines so I called him up and I was like all right Nick give me the worst case scenario and he goes you know I'm not quite sure that it's we're going to be headed that way and everyone calls me for the dark thinking and the black mirror but actually I think we can have a, a best case scenario if we're careful about it and I said okay that's interesting why don't you tell me more about that he basically said that if we get artificial intelligence uh, to take over a lot of work, we can create a society where people will just be able to enjoy life. And that's where he brought this Disneyland comparison in. Um, and by the way, I appreciate you saying it because it means you've actually read the book, which is awesome. <laughs> um, but uh, he he basically said that, you know, I, I was like, will we be fulfilled without work? And he said, the kids in Disneyland seem pretty happy and their whole job, as you mentioned, is to have fun. So why can't that be us? He said, people that retire and don't work have you know, very meaningful lives as long as their health is uh, is doing okay in, in most cases. Um, and so, to me, I thought that that was uh, that was pretty profound. You know, that we could, we, you know, if if we create a system that accounts for some of these worst the worst abuses uh, of this technology, and and we are able to develop it healthy in a healthy way, we could end up, you know, living a pretty good existence. Yeah. Uh, at the end of the day, which is pretty cool. Yeah, totally. I mean, it seems like we're kind of already moving a little more in that direction where, you know, there's this rise of, you know, no longer the gig economy, but the hustle economy one zero was mm -hmm. talking about, which is like, you know, everyone's starting their own, you know, Substack or podcast or, uh, you know, just basically whatever they're passionate about making that what they do rather than, you know, basically being a drone for some company like we would in the industrial era. So I, mm -hmm. I share Nick's optimism, although I also reserve some <laughs> some potential pessimism for what could go wrong. So I recognize mm -hmm. the importance there. So I'd like to maybe bring it home with the most likely scenario. Most likely scenario. So let's say we are eventually going to get to that Disney world or something close to it. What's the path between where we are now and where we are, where we want to be. Like, what does that transition look like? I mean, I think it's going to be difficult. You know, I do think that there's there's a lot of reasons to think that we can have the optimistic scenario, but you're asking realistic, so I'm just going to tell you the yeah. way that I think about it, which is that, again, we're a society that doesn't really seem to be able to help ourselves. Uh, we're not good at, at, at adjusting smoothly. We adjust with pain. Uh, mm. And there's going to be a lot of, pain as we move from a world that exists the way we do that it does today to one that's you know way more technology enabled um, because i don't have faith that our education system is going to be able to change in the way it needs to to solve for these problems or that our politicians are going to be able to act competently uh, or that the public you know will will see this for what it is given that we're living in a world of you know disinformation or even wearing a mask has become controversial mm. um so, so I think it's gonna, it, it will create a lot of pain, uh, you know, as we make our way there. We'll eventually adjust like we always do. Humans are incredibly adaptable species, uh, but it's gonna be hard. It's gonna be hard. Yeah. Is it gonna take some sort of boiling point for us to make that adjustment? Like, you know, you brought up that if there's no middle class, you know, society really can't function in the way it needs to. And, you know, one example that comes to mind is the Arab Spring, where essentially, 
a lot of people in the middle class were getting you know less and less income they were more and more dissatisfied with what the government policies were and because they didn't have income and they didn't have a place to live they eventually were like look we are not going to leave this square and pretty soon you have thousands of people in the square demanding change and there was violence and then finally some change happened do you think we're going to need to reach some sort of critical boiling point in order to you know, like you said, learn from pain and actually make the necessary changes? Yeah, I mean, look, the way that we went from the industrial economy to the knowledge economy, uh, it, it, was, was, uh, it wasn't easy, um, but we had some protections, right, that got us to a point where that transition could be good, like the New Deal helped, you know, even though it was written for an industrial era, like actually having these worker protections, the ability to unionize, these stuff, this stuff made a difference, and I guess they sort of dissipated once the knowledge economy uh, kicked into full gear, but they made the transition a little bit easier. Um, but yeah, I, look, I, I think that ultimately um, we go through good periods in our history, we go through dark periods, um, but you know, we all strive to, for a common goal, which is that we want life to be good for ourselves, for our families and for our kids. And so I think people will, will work towards that um, eventually. But you're right. Sometimes it does take a shock to the system. Um, if American democracy is still intact after November, that'll be a good start. Yeah. <laughs> and then we can worry about everything else afterwards. But we need to start with that. And then hopefully things, you know, things, things keep moving. Yeah. Awesome, Alex. Well, thank you so much. Um, maybe you can tell people where people can find you and, and uh, if you have any final thoughts for listeners. Yeah. Um, so first, I'll invite you to come join me. Uh, you know, I'm just starting a podcast on my own. I'll invite you to come join me. Uh, just type in Big Technology Podcast to any uh, any of the podcast apps you use. Um, we're starting out with a couple of debut episodes. Tim Bray, the Amazon VP who resigned out of protest out of the way that they were treating whistleblowers is going to be on, uh, you know, as one of our early guests, Zainab Tufekci. Um, the writer and researcher who talks about distributed social movements, which um, you just uh, referenced here at the yeah. end. Um, she'll be on. Um, Aaron Levy, the CEO of Box, will be on. We have a good good group of guests that are going to come on in the first month, and we should be taken off from there. Um, then you can also find the Big Technology newsletter, um, which I uh, referenced earlier. And then, of course, if you want to buy the book, uh, I you know I'd be forever grateful. Uh, yeah, I, I highly recommend it, you know, really for anyone who is wants to know how to adapt in this new economy. Always day one, Alex Kamtrowitz. Uh, thank you so much. It's been a real pleasure. And what will thank you. Great to be here. The past, the present, and the future. Present as the